0: Thank you for tuning in to Avant Life's weekly podcast. We hope this message inspires you, stirs your faith, and leaves you blessed. Well, welcome. I hope you've had a good week thus far, gearing up for the weekend, correct? All right. Well, if you're joining us online, welcome. If this is the first time that you're in here with us at Avant Life Church, My name is Pastor Ben. I have the great privilege of leading this church with my amazing wife, Pastor Emma. Emma, is something wrong with your leg or? (laughs) We just weren't using one of them. I was just curious if there's anything wrong there, but anyway. Emma and I were out in the park today and uh, took the kids out and um, all the whole family were on the swings and Emma always laughs at me because I'm the cautious one. I know it doesn't look like it. Uh, with my eating habits, but, but I'm the cautious one. And, and we're on these swings, and, and like, I just, I just take it easy. But Emma's that type of personality that will go hard. It's either go hard or go home. And so she's, you know, almost going the whole way around and doing her thing. But she decides at the age of the age and um, <laughs> that, that she can still just, you know, uh, taxi off... The swing whilst it's in mid air. Who, who remembers when you're a kid, you see how high you get the swing, and then you just like let go, and it's like it's like a few seconds of bliss. Everything slows down as you reach for you know terminal velocity. and all that type of stuff. Emma's doing this, but she doesn't realise that she no longer is a, a, a as flexible younger person. You're still very flexible. I get that. You're still very healthy, but Emma lands and there's something wrong straight away. She's like, I did something to my leg. <laughs> And uh, then she tried, it's like must be the bike, it must be this, but I just said, you know what, it's just life catching up with us, babe. That's all it is. I dismounted off the swing normally, and I'm fit and raring to go. I'm all good. Just Yep, (laughs) good. It all works, it's all good. Hey, guys, we're going to continue our series called Our Great Hope today. This is part three. I know I'm very good at titles, but... Part three, it is, if you weren't with us or you haven't been following along, which is totally fine for the last few weeks, last two weeks, we discuss and we are discussing that as Christians, our great hope is the resurrection. And so in part one, we discussed that heaven was not merely a destination for us once we've exited this earth, but a present reality right now for us as believers that we have heaven here on earth through our relationship with Jesus and we have access to the heavenly realms. Now, I totally get that when we pass away and graduate into eternity, that our souls will be found in heaven, but that doesn't stop us operating and activating that faith and allowing heaven to invade earth right now. We also spoke about in part two that the resurrection is not something confined to a spiritual resurrection, But as the Bible speaks about it, as history speaks about the concept of resurrection, even outside of biblical context, it meant a bodily resurrection. So Jesus didn't just rise spiritually, he was physically resurrected. And that is a promise for us. And we're going to continue that conversation today. Um, But before we jump into it, just a few updates for those of you who are following along. Number one, if you weren't here last week, um, we announced that we are continuing and making pathways through the graces of God in regards to our campus plant in Squamish, uh, which is exciting. Uh, You know, God is building the team, he's making a way, and we now have a building and an asset out there in which we have to renovate and do all those fun things. But as a church, can I tell you, God is on the move, not only in the North Shore now, Uh, through Avant Life, but also Squamish, and that's exciting. And there's a a whole bunch of people out in Squamish that call Avant Life Church home. And over the coming weeks and months, you're going to get to meet them as they begin to join us here for in-person services, which will be lots of fun. Number two, we will be relaunching our post- or mid-pandemic youth. Uh, (laughs) I don't know where we are in the scale of pandemic at the moment. Uh, But just like we're having in-person meetings uh, for our Sunday services, we will be relaunching what it will look like for our youth meeting in person. So stay tuned. Some really fun and cool updates coming out about that. So that's exciting. All right, so we're going to continue today on part three of Our Great Hope, and we're going to be discussing, in particular, the Easter narrative and Jesus' resurrection uh, in its, in its uh, I guess, apologetic thoughts and apologetic lens. And when we say apologetic, we're going to look at a, some evidence that uh, people discuss when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus. You know, in Philippians 2.12, Paul writes this, he says, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but as a, sorry, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, as a child, I used to read that, and my parents used to say, Ben, you've got to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And, and often we can misunderstand what Paul is trying to say here. Yeah, come on. I don't know what it said, but it sounded good. It's all right, we can all sing along if we need. Don't be sorry, I love this stuff. You're in the right church for that, it's all good. We're not too serious here. We often misunderstand what he's trying to say here. See, Paul gives a strange command. It's often misunderstood. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This remark sort of speaks of an ongoing obedience for those who believe in Jesus, those who are already saved. I say this because often as Christians, we talk about a whole bunch of things when it comes to our understanding of Christ. But at the end of the day, we we don't have a great thorough understanding of the resurrection. Now, we do know that Jesus died and that he rose again, but we don't understand the implication of resurrection in this context. Like, like without the resurrection, the whole Old Testament and everything previous is no longer validated. Without the resurrection, the New Testament, and what God does through the church and the growth of the church in the world no longer makes sense. The resurrection of Christ is what makes everything come together. It is that linchpin. And and Jesus himself, when he is resurrected, the whole story that goes with this has important historical clues for us to understand. These historical clues are part of that making sense in our mind. Now, I'm not here to tell you that you don't need faith. I'm just saying your faith needs to partner more than with a, a, a social gathering on a Sunday. It's got to partner with some realities that Christ begins to speak to us through his written word. That, that concept of fear and t- uh, trembling is not that you should be fearful, but you should approach it with a worship-centered respect towards God, yeah. which means resurrection, if you haven't started to think about it, if you've simply said, yes, Jesus is alive again, we need to discuss just a few things tonight, a few things that are going to help you as a person, as a believer, remain steadfast. I love that when we talked about uh, resurrection from a pagan point of view, the discussion is that, that yes, they understand what resurrection is, they just never thought it could happen. And then the Jews had the thought that, well, yeah, we believe in resurrection for most of them, uh, but it'll happen at the last days when, when God judges and remakes the world. But then we see this Eastern narrative enter in And this changes everything. The way we see, the way we think about resurrection all shifts from a human perspective when when Christ enters the story. See, when you accept Jesus into your heart as a believer, when you say, you know what, I identify with him in his life, death, and resurrection, we actually have to identify with him in his life, death, and resurrection. It's not something that we just make a commitment to and then leave it there as just I ticked a box. To identify is to explore, to identify is to apply that, to identify is to investigate all the evidence so that there is an actual application in your life for this. Resurrection power has an application in your life here and now. And as we look through this, it's going to hopefully begin to allow you not only to go, oh, that makes way more sense right now but also to start applying the promises and the covenants God, God has made with us into a, a, a powerful expression here on earth right now. Many people, when they first encounter the Christian faith, this might have been you, uh, you know, the whole concept tends to, to center around, the discussion uh, centers around what Jesus taught in comparison to other religions, right? That's, that's usually the first discussion point, is what did Jesus teach and how does that compare to what others were saying? The mind is trying to decide if Jesus is the superior teacher with superior ideas on reality, on love, on justice, on fulfillment. And this is what we usually, when when someone first encounters the Christian faith, that's the first part of the journey. And often as believers, we can get caught up thinking that Christianity is all about faith in a particular principle or godly principles or faith in uh, you know a particular style of living, when really when you look at it, what differentiates Christianity isn't the, the principles alone. It isn't what we, we consider Christ's teaching alone. Primarily, Christianity is about something that happened. This is what makes it very different to other faiths. Yes, we have the principle God has given us. Yes, it, it is good for us to apply it in our life, but at the end of the day, our faith is actually based on what happened to Christ. This is an interesting dynamic that shifts everything. A historical moment—the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus—is what makes Christianity different to every other faith. And we're going to discuss today that that at the, that at the core of Christianity, if the, if the resurrection of Christ can be proven wrong, then everything falls apart. I mean, everything falls apart. So you could try to disprove any other part of our faith and it could still stand. But you disprove that Jesus Christ came, lived and then was resurrected, then we may as well pack up and go home. Actually, the early church was so passionate about their belief in the resurrection, they didn't mind people investigating it. See, one of the things I find interesting is that we've become so comfortable in our faith and so, and so entrenched in our thinking. We don't actually like people challenging our own. We go, faith is something private. Since when was faith private? Faith's not private. Jesus says, go into all the world, be witnesses, be heralds, make good news known to everyone, the good news being Christ. What's private about that? He says, go into the public spaces, preaching it, living it out. But we have this concept now that our faith is private and we don't want to discuss these things. We don't want people to investigate it. The amount of times I have conversations with people who are afraid to share their faith, can I tell you this This is not out of condemnation. Their fear doesn't come from somebody saying something they don't agree with. Their fear comes from someone saying something that makes them have to investigate their own belief. That's what's happening here. And so my hope is, and the reason why we're doing uh, the series on our great hope is that you'd understand that this is the cornerstone of our faith is the resurrection of Christ. And if you can begin to investigate it and begin to realize that your faith in this can't just be blind, it has to actually be found in what the word has said, you'd start to realize you shouldn't be as afraid to share your faith as you might be. That what you believe in Jesus is not as shaky as you thought it was that the only difference between you and the early Christian is that they had complete faith that Jesus was resurrected. And you might be like, oh, Ben, that's a bit harsh, but I say this going through the journey with you to a degree. Now, I've been through this before. I've studied the resurrection, and it's only recently I start to realize that maybe we don't talk enough about it. Maybe we've made all our conversations about how God can make your life easy. Now, we wouldn't say it that simply, would we? But at the end of the day, this is what the implications are of of some of the stuff we preach. Now, I'm not here to say that God's going to make your life easy. I'm just here to say that God's going to make you victorious. That he's going to empower you not to survive something, to thrive in something. Not through a monetary value, but through a heavenly invasion of your life. See, I believe not in the prosperity gospel in the sense that if you're good, he's going to give you a big house. I believe that if you actually allow heaven through the scriptures begin to transform you, kingdom of God here right now, you're gonna begin to inherit something far greater than money can give you. That's your purpose, that's your calling. It doesn't mean it's gonna be easy. It just means you're gonna be found right where you're meant to be. Today we're gonna discuss three particular ideas designed to challenge the validity of Christ's resurrection. By no means am I going to remove the need for faith. I'm not trying to prove it without a doubt. What I hope to do today is equip you with some sort of understanding, some context of why everything about the Easter narrative is actually amazing. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time and you've had a lot of Easter's and a lot of Christmases and it's become very traditional for you. Like, don't get me wrong, I love a good uh, Christmas uh, dinner, right? I love it. I love just, you know, when I was a kid, it was all about the presents. Now I'm an adult, it's all about the food. <laughs> oh, there's something happens there, right? We all know. And then Easter time, it's all about, and you know, as a kid, you like you get up and you get used to it and your parents teach you about Easter and there's the Easter egg hunt and you go find, if you did Easter egg hunts, find chocolate. As a kid, there's a lot of times just about chocolate. And then when you're older, you begin to think about it and you, and you do it year in, year out to the point that you you sort of lose your amazement to the narrative itself. Like it's, it's pretty amazing, the Easter narrative. Like we, we should be in awe of it. Often we approach it with a sense of sadness, which we should to a degree, but only momentarily. When the Bible says that sorrow is now, but joy comes in the morning, yeah. This is what I take from it. This is what the, the Eastern narrative should tell you, that sorrow and pain could be, be here with you right now as we speak about this. It will find its way into your life in different aspects, but at the end of the day, because of Jesus, joy is inevitable. Joy is inevitable. You've got to believe that. Joy is the Thanos of Bible. <laughs> if joy had a voice, it'd tell you, I, I am an inevitable thing in your life right now. So I was like, I, didn't, I haven't seen Avengers yet. You've ruined it. It's all right. Hey, before we di- dive into these particular things that, that challenge, and honestly, these are basic things, but if no one's ever spoken to you about this or tried to uh, teach you through this, if you were confronted with it, you might just sort of be like, you wouldn't be like, oh, yep. Now, I don't believe in Jesus anymore. You'd sort of go, oh, I wish someone actually taught me how to navigate this conversation. And so that's what I'm going to do today. I'm going to help you navigate basic conversations around the validity of the resurrection of Jesus. There's a few things I quickly want to explore, key relevant facts that will help you better understand what's going on. Number one, if you're taking notes, the medical and historical evidence around what took place in the resurrection doesn't disprove that Jesus was resurrected. More or anything, it actually points to the fact that something quite amazing took place. Now, you need to understand there's a theory out there called the swoon theory. Who's heard of the swoon theory? Swoon. This theory believes or wants you to think that Jesus drifted in and out of consciousness while on the cross and then later appeared to his disciples. The only problem is, and we're gonna discuss this in a little bit more detail later, that none of this concept is actually compatible with medical evidence or historical evidence. When I say this, I mean medically, the the, the trauma that Jesus went through would lead to death. Historically, Romans knew how to kill people. (laughs) Number two, the evidence of a missing body. If he hadn't risen, the body would have been easily found. Think about that. See, the Roman and Jewish leaders would have been searching high and low to disprove the resurrection once the disciples started preaching. So anyone saying, well, you know what? The body was taken and we'll discuss this later. The fact that the body is missing is evidence. Evidence of an empty tomb. Number three, this is that the grave clothes were left behind and that there was no body there. But the grave clothes were, if the body had remained in the tomb, we would have known about it. If it was robbed, like a lot of people say, well someone, you know, the gospel talks about this, that someone robbed his body, they would have taken the grave clothes with him because that's the most expensive part. You wouldn't unwrap the body and then fold it neatly and leave it there. If you were robbing, think about this. I don't know if there's any robbers out there. But if you broke into a house and you were going to rob something, do you make their bed on the way out? You're like, ah, oh, man, this house is messy. He's <laughs> going to do the dishes, I'm going to make their bed, but I'm going to take their TV. No one does that. Why would they have done it then? Number four. This is a big one. Evidence of post crucifixion appearance of Jesus. Corinthians 15 actually lists eyewitnesses. The Bible doesn't talk about a select few, but hundreds of people, both believers and hostile unbelievers, that claim to witness the resurrected Jesus. These four things are very important for us to understand. I'll go through them quickly. Medical and historical evidence, the evidence of a missing body, the evidence of an empty tomb, and the evidence of uh, post-crucifixion appearance of Jesus. These are key things. Just keep them in your mind as we go through this. So the first uh, challenge I want to talk about today that that challenges the, the validity of the resurrection of Jesus is this concept that Jesus didn't really die. We talked uh, uh, earlier about the swoon theory and and some skeptics just say that Jesus, you know, either he passed out and came alive or he was given some sort of, you know, narcotic that caused him to look dead. And that he didn't actually, he didn't really die at all. It was just a, a big thought he was dead, but actually he's still alive. Like, like, Islam actually takes this as their official position, that Jesus never actually died. So what do we as believers do with this theory? Well, let's go through this. I've got some points for you. Ten writers outside of the Bible mentioned Jesus of Nazareth. They weren't friends of Christianity These guys are subjective, but objective. Objective in the sense that they didn't share our faith, but subjective in the fact that often they wanted to prove it wrong. Ten of them write about Jesus of Nazareth, both Jewish and some Roman. But they make it clear in their writings that Jesus, in fact, died. In the book of Josephus, he writes in, in Antiquities 18, and it sounds weird because you think it sounds like a Bible scripture. Uh, chapter 18, verse uh, 63 to 64, I'm going to read it to you. It says this, Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works. This man doesn't believe in him as, as, uh, as the Savior, by the way. A teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, had condemned him to the cross, death, that's what it meant by that for Joseph, those that loved him at first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again the third day. As the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him and the tribe of Christians so named from him are not extinct at this day. This is what the historian Josephus writes about Christ, that he's a wonderful man, that there's something amazing about him. But because of the, the principled leaders of Jerusalem at the time convinced Pilate to execute him, that's what took place. But he also goes on to say that he was seen alive again. This happens and is spoken about by 10 known writers outside of the biblical context. That's incredible. You need to know, and we've spoken about this, that uh, the Roman treatment of criminals destined for the cross wasn't pleasant. It wasn't pleasant. We see, when we read the Bible, that what takes place to, to Jesus before actually being crucified is barbaric. It is violent, it is gruesome. For a lot of us, we wouldn't even make it alive to the cross. This was the common treatment of prisoners that the Romans undertook before crucifying them. But Jesus got extra special beating. Why? Because Pilate tried to find middle ground, didn't he? So let's just beat him a bit and see if they let him go. But they didn't. They wanted to crucify him. Do you know in the Roman Empire, up to 6,000 people were crucified every day? Right across the empire. Think about that, 6,000 people. That is a, that's a disturbing amount of life being robbed through crucifixion. I say it because obviously Romans know how to make sure criminals died. In their mind. Now, these people might have been not been criminals to to our morality, but according to Roman law they were. But they knew how to kill people. And so to simply think that the empire that knew how to crucify and they did it day in, day out, people until dead simply made a mistake with Jesus is utterly absurd. Like, Like historical evidence points the other direction. It's wishful thinking. So the understanding that understanding that Jesus didn't really die, one, history doesn't accept it, and neither does the medical evidence. Number two, the second challenge. They went to the wrong tomb. Ever heard of this one? They went to the wrong tomb. Hey, we've all gotten lost before, so we need to actually think about this seriously, right? Anyone here not gotten lost? We've all gotten lost. I had a friend, I kid you not, parked his car in a... a a multi-story car park after a day or two, went back to find his car, but it was stolen. And so he puts in an insurance claim, gets a brand new vehicle. A few months later, he parks at the same parkade. parks at the level he always parks in, and sees his old car. Oh my goodness. <laughs> the brother just went to the wrong level. Like, literally, this car was covered in dust and spiderwebs, but he'd just gotten lost. He put on a full-in insurance. Actually, it became a problem, right? Because it just looks like you rotted the system. Hey, we all make mistakes. When I was a youth pastor, we had a pizza night one night. I was like, girls, you know, boys split up. We're going to talk about girl things, and we're going to talk about boy things, and, and was, that's fine. But the problem we had was the guys kept going to the girls' area and trying to eat their pizza. <laughs> Classic, right? And so I started becoming, I'm the pizza police now. So I'm yelling at guys, no, it's not for you, go away, go away. and I'm reaching my limit of patience right now. And this dude walks up, just completely rejects what I'm telling all the guys to do, walks up to the table and starts eating pizza. I was like, dude, what is wrong with you? I just said no guys can eat pizza. And she turns around. And she's like, but I thought the pizza's for the girls and I was like, you know, absolutely, you can have a piece of pizza. We make, we make mistakes, I get it. I, we all make mistakes. Mistakes happen. Come on, we've all been there, right? right. (laughs) It was a long night. A lot of pastoral care after that. Mistakes happen. And I'm I'm not justifying my behaviour, but I just mean in general, mistakes happen. But it never is and it never will be actually something we can base our objections on when it comes to the tomb. There's actually no evidence to support i mean no evidence to support they went to the wrong tomb no written evidence no painted evidence no oral narrative passed down through the generations zero evidence the whole idea that he went to the or they went to the wrong tomb is simply made up as a possibility to deal with the doubt in our minds i mean if they'd gone to the wrong tomb something would have happened people would have redirected them to the right tomb. It wouldn't have taken long. Like you hear stories of people that have drunk too much alcohol going to the wrong apartment. It doesn't take long before that gets fixed. It's the same thing. You go and make, hey, Jesus's tomb's empty. The authorities would have gone and looked at that. It wasn't just the disciples and they would have been like, actually wrong tomb. It's the third one down from the left near the Rose Garden, come on. Anyone ever says to you, well, probably went to the wrong tomb. Just tell them, historians don't give this skeptical idea any thought. They give it zero consideration. Number three. This challenge is actually what I find something that Christians really do need to get their heads around. This is probably the most complicated one that we're gonna talk about tonight. So one being that he didn't really die. Well, there's not much evidence actually pointing to that and a whole lot of evidence pointing to the fact that Jesus died. That he's tomb they went to the wrong tomb. There's zero evidence to say that. But this one, this one's interesting. Third challenge. That I want to talk about is the whole thing is an elaborate hoax. Ever feel like you go online, you're on Facebook or something and you watch one of those conspiracy theories videos? You know what I'm talking about? And at first you start watching it and you're like, this is just load of crock, whatever. But then you, after about half an hour and you realise you just lost half an hour of your life because you watched a conspiracy theory, you're like, wow. Maybe George W. Bush did bomb the World Trade Towers. <laughs> All the evidence is there. But is it? Because someone told you it, right? And this is what the whole concept is. The whole thing is an elaborate hoax, actually challenges the complete validity of gospel recordings. It's not just saying that that the resurrection of Jesus is a hoax, it's saying the way it was recorded is a hoax. that that a whole bunch of people came together to create this elaborate scheme without computers and iPhones and immediate communication. They worked tirelessly somehow and figured it all out. But there's a few things that actually push back against this idea. Number one, multiple testimonies. Historically speaking, when somebody did something it was rarely recorded multiple times from different perspectives. Usually there's one or two, but most of the time, just one. One historian wrote something and it got catalogued and then just stored and rescribed over and over again to keep it, 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 the history alive. One, what makes this interesting is that there is four gospels, not one gospel. Now that doesn't mean that they all line up perfectly. Actually, the fact that they all don't necessarily tell exactly the same story tells us that there was independence in their writing, that there wasn't collusion in their writing. There's times in the Bible where the counting is different of who was where. That doesn't mean that they're inaccurate. It just tells you, just like if I was to get a portrait done up of my beautiful wife, Emma, but I chose four different master artists, four master painters to paint her. They would all paint her slightly differently, would they not? But do you think if they're all painting a portrait of her, which means it has to be accurate to somewhat, that that all four of them are gonna paint her hair a different color? They're not. So this is the thing, the gospels are four very accurate but differently written historical documents about the same subject but they don't say Jesus has brown hair in one and blonde hair in the other. They don't make those inaccuracies. There's continuity amongst them. Do you know what I find interesting? You should know this. History is the study of what has happened that can't be repeated. That's what history is. Science is the study of what is repeatable. Correct? You can just believe me today. Cool. We're just (laughs) going to go with that. So... Caesar crossed the Rubicon once. He crossed it once as he invaded Rome. Never repeats it again. But if he was to cross the Rubicon again, it wouldn't be identical. It'd be for a different reason. Therefore, history is not repeatable. I say this because when we look at the evidence around Caesar crossing the Rubicon, there is far less written evidence that he did so historically, yet we believe it without a doubt. Without a doubt. Yeah, of course Caesar did that. Without a doubt, through the same sense of written history, and I mean even more imperative should we know that four Gospels talk of it, not just one historian, four historians write this down, history based on how we collate it and how we evaluate it, Jesus, under, his, under historian rules, died and, and, and was resurrected. Based on how we apply the same logic to things like Caesar crossing the Rubicon. History itself says, if we were to study it in the same measure we study other parts of history, Jesus died and he was raised from the, the, the grave to the power of God. History says that. Only problem is, Science doesn't. Why? Because science is the study of something repeatable. Isn't this interesting? Now, don't get me wrong. It makes complete sense to me that we have a scientific issue with this. We don't have a historical issue with it. We have a scientific issue. Why? Because Jesus' resurrection was not of this world. And this is why I say to you, I can't remove the concept of faith completely from this discussion is because at the end of the day something supernatural happened history records it as fact but science can't support it because according to the laws of science that is impossible it's not repeatable but that's why we serve the god of the impossible see as a christian you got to start understanding the doubt that science brings around his resurrection actually should fill you with greater faith because science cannot perceive what God himself, the creator of science, is doing. Of course, it's going to be challenged by the fact that Christ achieved something that is impossible and and then promises it to all of us in the time to come. Four Gospels, far more conclusive than any other literary record. Number two, the early attestation just means the eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus. We see Paul write about it in 1 Corinthians 15. He writes about that, and he writes Corinthians almost 20 years after the resurrection. That's a long time. 20 years ago, Pastor Emma could jump off a swing and land it. <laughs> but Paul says something here when he writes in 1 Corinthians 15.3. He says, what I receive, I pass on to you. This is a Jewish historical tradition. What he says, what I receive, is means I have, through oral communication, heard from a first hand eyewitness that this took place. Why is that important? Because it's no longer second or third hand, which means it hasn't entered the legendary era. You're like, what is that? Well, the legendary era starts and it's a historical thing where, where you're now a few generations after the fact and now legend begins to obscure accuracy. So each generation tends to add a little thing to something, right? You can see it in, co- in how commercialization works in the West. Each and every generation adds something to something else and we celebrate something. Like there's more celebrations now about things we never celebrated 50 years ago. Because every generation adds something to this world and to the story and to the narrative, and that's cool. But in regards to this, the Gospels and the New Testament is written prior to the legendary era. It is written based on eyewitness accounts. It's written whilst those who saw were still alive, or it was written by the authors who spoke to those that had seen, even if they had passed away. That's why he says, what I receive, I pass to you. He's making it clear that this is accurate. Relying on eyewitness testimony when it comes to historical narratives is gold. If you can get an eyewitness while you're writing down something that took place in history, that is historical gold. And the Gospels have hundreds of them. The New Testament has hundreds of them. Witnesses. What I love is that it includes people who didn't believe in the first place. Like Paul. Doesn't he was hostile, but encounters the resurrected Jesus and begins to testify. Thomas is a doubter. Like he cops that that, that nickname forever. But it doesn't, it, they don't remove his testimony. If the resurrection story is an elaborate hoax then why did the writers include some really awkward truths? Like the gospels contain stories that make early church leaders look really bad. If it was a hoax, if you put yourself in their position, if you're going to write something that is talking about a hoax and it's all a hoax, none of it's real, Why would you make yourself look bad? To what benefit? They make themselves, they don't hide the truth, the fact that the Easter narrative is unflattering, that it portrays the disciples as scared, doubtful, slow to believe. It doesn't spare any details. It doesn't pander to their ego at all. It makes it very clear, this awkward truth. what it tells us is that the authors were more interested in the truth than the projection of their ego, which once again pushes back against the whole concept of an elaborate hoax. This is a a common conversation. The next point is that awkward truth included women being the first to testify of the resurrected Jesus. I say it's an awkward truth, not because women are awkward, but During the writing of this, women were considered second second class citizens. They weren't allowed to give testimony in a court of law. And if they were going to, they had to have a man approve it. Crazy. It was not uncommon for Jewish men to thank God that they weren't a Gentile, to thank God that they weren't a dog, but most of all to thank God they weren't a woman. That is the cultural depravity of the time. That is how women were seen. And all of a sudden, the first apostles, the first witnesses to the resurrected Jesus are women. If this was a hoax, that is what you'd call getting a two-barreled shotgun and shooting yourself in the foot. Why would you do that? You wouldn't. Think about it. If you were gonna tell a lie and you were gonna include people in that lie, would you include the people that no one's gonna believe? Or would you manufacture something far more concrete in human understanding to get your elaborate hoax through the door and so everyone accepts it? See, what I love about this, and we're just gonna take a sidebar here, is that God knew that women were gonna be the first at the tomb. Jesus in his teachings was a great advocate for women. He actually had an issue with how they were being treated at the time. A lot of Paul's writing about women are reflections of what Jesus started and was, was this concept that men had allowed women a lack of equality in Jewish society. He Sees it as ungodly. Jesus advocates for women. Of Course it makes sense. Because even in the witness of his resurrection, he advocates for women. Where men wouldn't trust the deliverer of the good news, the gospel will. And that should bring us all hope because we live in a society now that it might not be your gender specifically that doesn't allow you the privilege of someone believing exactly what you're a voice at the table of decision making. But the Gospels are very clear that God does not look at these certain things as requirements anymore. He doesn't see the fact if you're male or female as something that stops you from accessing resurrection power. If this was an elaborate hoax, we would not have had all the bad stories. We wouldn't have had all the unflattering portrayals of the disciples. We wouldn't have had women as the early or the earliest witnesses of the resurrected Jesus. We would have a very boring story. The last thing I want to talk about, and we'll speak more on this next week, but the rise of the early church and how quickly it happened is but one of the greatest evidence that Jesus himself was resurrected. Would you stand with me? I know you're wondering, well, how does this apply right now? Uh, I'm not feeling all the, the warm, fuzzy bubblies. I really do believe that God is calling his church to pay greater attention to how we perceive, operate, and activate resurrection power in our life. I really do believe that he is not tired of how we outwalk our Christianity. He just wants us to live it in a greater depth of power and authority. That he wants us to fully apply the concept of Christ's resurrection. Like, like if history itself testifies that he died and rose again, but science is what struggles, then this tells us this is not something of permanency. This is something of choice. Christianity has never shied away from higher thinkers battering up against it to try to prove that it's not true. It has stood the test of time. It has been alive and well for two millennia. Can I honestly encourage you? This is not a matter of something proving it wrong because they have tried and failed. This is a matter of choice. Either you're gonna choose that this is something that didn't happen, even though history says it did. I mean, secular history says, well, According to all the evidence that we believe in other things, the Bible far greater in its application of the right type of historical narrative is true. Jesus Christ lived and died and rose again. But science says, well, it's unrepeatable. That means you have a choice. You either choose through faith, which is why it says by faith, like like the Lord knew this was going to happen. It's either by faith that you partner with what history says took place, which says Jesus did live. He did teach about repentance. He did take all our sins to the cross and he did rise again, conquering death and, and, and shame and, and the grave three days later. You either believe that by choice and a step of faith or you partner with the unrepeatable science and you say, well, I don't wanna believe in it because it can't be repeated, which is your choice. That's totally fine. That's your choice. But as a Christian, if you've said you believe that you identify in his life, death, and resurrection, then you identify in his resurrection. This is not something that is simple. This is powerful. When you wake up, when you're like, oh man, today could be a rough day, know this. Know that the resurrected king who started off the servant king, the resurrected king now dwells in you that the Holy Spirit empowers you. Resurrection power lives and breathes through you. It doesn't mean life's gonna be easy. It doesn't mean you won't face trials and testing and letdown. What it tells you is that you have a great hope. Yeah. Wow. Not that your life is gonna be super comfortable, but a great hope that God is resurrecting not only this world through your obedience, but He's resurrecting you. We're going to talk next week how the rise of the early church is one of the greatest testimonies of the resurrection of Jesus. Simply because in 350 to 400 years, Christianity went from 12 believers to 56 million believers. Then less than 100 years later, that the, the very empire that executed Jesus, more than half of them testified of his resurrection. Tell me. Can a hoax inspire such godly rebellion? Can can a a wrong tomb mindset actually empower people to overturn in love and sacrifice one of the greatest empires known to men? I challenge you right now as a believer, if Jesus didn't really die, then how did all of this actually take place? if it was just in and out of consciousness. You've got to start to operate in everything in your life. Jesus died and He rose again. He rose again. Honestly, when you're challenged with an issue in your life, can I, can I encourage you, simply repeat this. Jesus rose again. He was resurrected. You gotta remind your spirit, Jesus was resurrected. Why do I tell you that? Because every time you remind yourself that Jesus was resurrected, you testify that He's still resurrecting, that He is the beginning of the new creation, not just in this world, but in you. I said this every time I've spoken about this. He is resurrecting marriages. He is resurrecting people that are suffering from mental health. He is resurrecting physical body needs. He is resurrecting hospitals. He is resurrecting our community. When we gather like this, when we invite people to church, you're not inviting them to church in a context of a seat or a pew, you're inviting them to heaven. How do I know that? Because the moment Jesus died and rose again, he started the new process of resurrection, which is heaven invading earth. And how does he invade earth? Through the transcendation the of his church, through us, our conduit, you and me. So when we worship, when we come together as we're about to right now, heaven invades. So when I invite a friend to, to come to church, I'm actually inviting them to encounter heaven. How do I know that? Because Jesus, my King, was resurrected. Jesus, your King, was resurrected. Every time we challenge ourselves to get up, challenge yourself in resurrection power. The enemy does it. He wants you to think all these other things. Oh, I just got to endure. Yeah, you do, but you endure in resurrection power. Oh man, this is going to be rough. Yeah, it will be, but you'll overcome in resurrection power. Testified. That was what the early Christians did. They didn't go out and testify, hey, we've been saved from our sin because Jesus died and rose again. They simply went out and said, Jesus is resurrected. He is alive. And because of that, everything that he has said is true. Therefore, he is the Messiah. Are you guys ready to worship again? Resurrection power? Come on. We hope you enjoyed this message. We would love you to subscribe to our weekly podcast. Other ways you can connect with Avant Life is through YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook. Check out our website at avantlifechurch.com.